The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Verse 15 and following through the end of chapter 2. Paul writes, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so to train young women to love their husbands and their children, and to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive, to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age as we wait for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, a people who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your church. Thankful for the body of believers that is gathered here in this place this morning. And for believers who are gathered in other locations all around the world even now. A church that's united at the core by the work of your son Jesus and his death on the cross on our behalf. His shed blood which covers our sin. His resurrection, which paves the way for us to new and eternal life. We're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us and that's established your church. And we're thankful, Lord, this morning, particularly for this church, for these believers who've gathered in this place today, who've come with a heart that is set on worshiping you. And we gather, Lord, around your word, and your word has has spoken to us already in these words that we've sung. And your word is spoken to us through the words of Paul that we've just read. Lord, we pray that your word would affect us. That it would change us. That it would make us into what we are not. That it would purify us. Birth within us holiness, purity. A love for you that runs deeper than any other love in our lives. And as we hear Paul's words to specific people in the church we pray for ourselves lord we pray for our older men who've gathered in this place today we pray lord that they would be sober-minded men that they would be dignified men that their lives would be marked with self-control and not indulgence that their faith would be strong and secure that it would be a faith that younger men could look up to We pray that they would be steadfast in their lives. That they would live in such a way that they would be a model for others to see. A model of godliness. 
And Father, we pray for our older women who have gathered with us today. We pray, Lord, that they would, too, be, be, be reverent in their behavior. That they would be sober-minded. That the words that flow from their lips would be words of encouragement. Words that build up, not words that tear down. That they would have a heart to invest in our younger women. We thank you for the experiences they've had in their lives. The good experiences, the hard experiences, the painful seasons like the ones we heard in testimony this morning. We thank you for those moments. All of them, Lord, for they've, they've shaped the lives of these women. And we pray that they would invest that wisdom in the lives of those who come after them. We pray for our older men and our older women, Lord, that their faith would be strong. We pray that they would not retire from godliness and that they would not retire from the gospel, but they would work harder than ever to take their faith and pass it on to a new generation. And Father, we pray for our younger women who have gathered in this place. We pray that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them as they juggle the many responsibilities of home, the many responsibilities at times of work, of loving their children, of caring for their husbands. Lord, we pray that you would secure them in the midst of temptation by their faith, that they would not grow weary in doing good work, that they would find joy and pleasure in obedience to you, that they would carry themselves with dignity and respect. And Father, we pray for our younger men who have gathered. Your word calls younger men to be self-controlled. There's a world that's filled with temptations all around us that would draw us in, temptations that appeal to the eyes, temptations that appeal to our pride. Lord, buoy us and anchor us firmly in your word. That your spirit would be in control of our lives and not our passions. We pray for our younger men, Lord, that they would be leaders in their homes, leaders in godliness, leaders in speech, leaders in attitude. That their lives would be marked by holiness. And we thank you most of all, Lord Jesus, for your obedience to your Father. For your faithful, perfect life. Which sets the standard for us. And we thank you most of all that one day we're going to see you again. That we wait anxiously, Lord, for your return. Because we know when you come back, you're going to make all things right. Every sin is going to be done away with. All of the chaos and foolishness that goes on in the world around us will come to an end when you appear in all of your glory. The puny rulers of this world will bow before you, the king of the universe. And they will declare, along with every tongue, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We bow before you this morning. And we declare that even right now as we come before your word and we pull up to your table to eat of your food. You feed us, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter, chapter 3. Peter continues to address the people he's addressing here in this letter. With the theme of Christian living in a in a hostile world. Where does he go from here? Beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3, our text this morning. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. I see some of you now, like, slipping your rings off. And... But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that's the word of God today. Peter does this here. Paul does it in several places. They have a lot to say about marriage. Because they know that the individual family units were the the building blocks for the order, uh, for the structure of society. They also knew that a healthy relationship between a husband and wife was the glue that kept the family together. And um, you might remember back in Judges 16, I don't have this on the screen. Judges 16, verse 6, we read what happens when there's no order or structure in society, or 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When there was no order or structure, chaos ensued. And so Peter and Paul both were well aware that without any order, the structure would fall apart. I'm also aware of how sensitive this issue of submission is, especially with regard to a Christian who's married to a pagan. We just heard one. And especially in the state of South Carolina in 2011, we come first in a lot of things, and most of them bad. But in 2011, South Carolina had the highest rate of women murdered by men in the United States, more than double the national average. We got better in 2012. We had the second highest rate of women murdered by men. They're not all husbands and wives, but it's virtually all domestic violence. Peter, not not in this way, but Peter was in touch with reality. He was married. Paul wasn't. But Peter knew that marriages are not heaven on earth, from time to time at least. Thought I'd hear an amen there. Like every other human institution, and like all of creation, marriages suffer from the effects of the fall. We see it over and over in our own lives and the lives of others. Suffering is experienced in marriage like every other aspect of life. It's not immune. Peter assumes that. He says back in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Peter is aware of that, that a a wife, a Christian wife living uh, with a non-Christian husband was going to be spoken ill against unless he comes to faith in Christ. Peter was aware of those things. So because of the fallen world that we live in, the sin nature that exists in our flesh, Christian marriages are susceptible to the same sort of problems as non-Christian marriages. And Peter knows that suffering for the sake of Christ will always be the case for faithful believers. So after he explains there at the end of chapter 2 how the Christians should conduct themselves in the world, he goes next to give instructions to wives and husbands and how they should behave. 
Remember, he's already caught, told, reminded them a couple of times, you're aliens and strangers in this place. You're elect exiles. You're just strangers in this world. You're passing through. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. And, and, and these are people who are facing persecution. I mean, Peter's writing this not long before Nero kills him as well. Listen, ladies, if it, it, they were aliens and strangers then, but if you want to you you, you see what it's like to be an alien in this world, let me suggest something to you. Join your neighborhood book reading club. Not the Christian one, just your neighborhood book reading club. And at the first meeting, announce that you're submissive to your husband. You are an alien. They will look at you that way. They will treat you like you're from another planet. The looks on their faces will be, you're the strangest person I've ever met. And your peers, especially those that are progressive and enlightened, will consider you just somebody who's living thousands of years off. How in the world could you obey the words of a Galilean fisherman who wrote 2,000 years ago about something that took place in that culture and it doesn't relate to us today? That's how they'll treat you. That's how they'll look at you. Aliens and strangers, that's that's what we are. If I could take a little side road here from a cultural standpoint, what we're going through Here again in this passage, as we see in those other passages on marriage, the clash between the LGBTQ moral revolution and God's Word makes it clear the struggle for one who would insist that they are a believer but live in a same-sex lifestyle. And we realize you cannot do both. The assumption throughout Scripture The declaration throughout Scripture is always as God designed it. Marriage is between a wife and a husband. It always says that. Wives. Husbands. If two women are in a marriage-type relationship, I say marriage-type for a reason, relationship, or two men, who's the God-appointed head? Who's the one to submit Marriage is a reflection of the order of society. It reflects a relationship between Christ the groom and the church, who's the bride. And you can't use the term gay marriage. I think that's an oxymoron. Marriage includes a wife and a husband. And I might add that just because I have to, the wife is a female and the husband is a male. So here's the outline for the next couple of weeks. Uh, verses 1 and 2, silence is golden. Verses 3 and 4, ultimate beauty. 5 and 6, supermodels. Can't wait till we talk about supermodels, right guys? Verse 7, godly leadership. Silence is golden. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The reason that um, women get six verses and men get one refers to the culture. No other reason. Um, And we'll talk about that more. But the truth, besides the culture that they're in, when Peter's writing this, the truth, capital T, is the same today. The emphasis is due to their current context. What is that context? Well, let me give you a little bit of background on that. In every sphere of ancient civilization, you've got two two types of, two, two civilizations, three to deal with, actually. 
But in every sphere of ancient civilization, women had no rights. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was owned by her husband exactly the same way that he owned sheep and he owned goats. For no reason could a woman leave her husband, although he could get rid of her at any moment. For a wife to change her religion while her husband did not was unthinkable. That's in Jewish law. In Greek civilization, the duty of the woman was to, quote, to remain indoors and to be obedient to her husband. It was a sign of a good woman that she see as little, that she hear as little, and she ask as little as possible. She had no kind of independent existence, no kind of mind of her own, and her husband could divorce her for almost any reason so long as he returned her dowry. Under Roman, that was Greek law, under Roman law, a woman had no rights. In, in Roman law, she remained forever a child. When she was under her father, she was under what the Romans called potira potestas. Potira potestas. It meant the father's power. Gave the father the right of life and death over her. For virtually anything, he could kill a girl with no trial. And then when she married, that power, that patira potestas, passed over to her husband. She was entirely subject to her husband, completely at his mercy. Cato the Elder, um, or Cato the Censor, he was a senator in Rome, a historian, um, said, if you were to catch your wife in an act of fidelity, infidelity, you can kill her with impunity without a trial. Roman women were prohibited from drinking. One named Ignatius beat his wife to death when he found her drinking. Sulpicius Gallus dismissed his wife because she was once appeared in the streets without a veil. Antitius Vestus divorced his wife because he saw her secretly speaking to a freed woman in public. Publius Sempronius Sophus, wouldn't you like that name, divorced his wife because she went out to the public games. It's the same extreme legalism we see in Muslim extremists today. The whole attitude of ancient civilization was that no woman could dare make a decision for herself. And you think you've got it bad. And the culture of Peter's day and the culture of our day are worlds apart. It could hardly be more different as far as marriage and our relationships are concerned. The place of women is concerned. When Peter commanded wives to be subject to their husbands, this came to them as no surprise whatsoever. From day one, they knew they were supposed to do that. Submission was exactly demanded of women back in that day as well. Plutarch, apparently the historian, was apparently a little kinder about all of this. So it is with women also. If they subordinate themselves to their husbands, they are commended. But if they want to have control, they cut a sorrier figure than the subjects of their control. And control ought to be exercised by the men over the women not as the owner has control over a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. That's almost sweet. <laughs> not quite. And in our society, in that society, in that culture, the women that are reading this letter expected what Peter just said. That first part, wives, be subject to your own husbands. In our society, it's totally foreign and repugnant to the feminist progressive movement outside the church and inside the church. There are those within the church who think this is just a cultural command that doesn't have any application for today. It doesn't apply to our day and age. 
I've even had brides come over the years for premarital counseling with their fiancé and one of the first things they say to me, and you know what it is, could you just leave out that part that says, obey your husband? I want to say, well, you did come to a church. Well, now the text. That's some background. Likewise. Well, that means it's connected to what's been said already, right? Uh, or um, some of your translations might say, in the same way. So what does he mean by that? Well, in the same way, he says that in verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, uh, to the emperor supreme or governors or so on and so forth. We, we, we went through all of that. Verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We can relate that to uh, for employers and employees. Be submissive in the same way. We see this teaching in other places. Paul spends even more time on it. We see that wedding passage that's used a lot in weddings in Ephesians 5, uh, verses 22 and following. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit or must. You could use the word there. Wives must submit in everything to their husbands. And as I said, the moral revolution is moving at breakneck speed in our own day and age. Trying its best to bring equality to the sexes and therefore just seeking to force the removal of any such teaching as this. And so within the church, they use text to emphasize saying this is just a cultural phenomenon that doesn't apply today. And so let's look at at what uh, he says in Ephesians 5.21, just one verse before that passage, where he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, even those who want to do away with submission can buy into this, just because submitting, there's a mutuality involved. In marriage, there's a mutual submission involved. He's actually, Paul in here, 521, still talking about the church. He didn't get to marriage till the next verse, but that doesn't matter to them. And then they point, there is an example of this mutual submission, which... Also, the progressives have problems with in the church today, and that's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There again is that mutuality. There's no one submitting to other. They submit to each other. And my point is not about sex here, but Paul's pointing out that each one in the marriage relationship has a physical responsibility within the marriage relationship. They are called to that same mutual submission. The wife's body does not belong to hers alone. The husband's body does not belong to him alone. Now I'm going to take another little cultural side road here. This speaks directly to me to the pro-choice argument that a woman has a right to her own body. Not for believers, not in the church, not according to God. And the matter of abortion, I find that that's really not a good argument anyway. Because when you say, first of all, a woman has a right to do something to, to take to treat her own body her own way. Well, but it's not her body she's talking about. It's somebody else's body she's killing. Bless you. The government says she alone has to say and what to do with that baby because her body does not belong to him, the husband. 
But that's simply not true according to God. See why we're aliens and strangers? And it's going to get worse. The point is, there is a mutuality. There's a mutual submission in the relationship that does not do away with wives submit to your husband. And further, those who want to make this argument that Peter is just dealing with a cultural issue here, um, they point to Galatians 3.28. They say there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Women don't have to submit. You are one in Christ. You're equal from now on in Christ what Paul's talking about here. In Christ, the woman has the same access to Christ as the husband. It's not teaching that since there's an equality in the spiritual realm, that there's no order in business. There's no order in government. There's no order in the home. There's no order in the church. There is equality in the spiritual realm. There is order in all the areas of society. And why would God go to all the trouble to have Peter and Paul teaching these truths simply to reverse it? And even though the world wants to do away with the distinction of gender, that is not what God is saying through Paul here. In Christ, we are equal. We can take this another way. We could... could, in, in that passage, we could, we could go all the way down to the priesthood of the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. How that speaks to that. We could also take that verse and show how popery. I had to use another Martin Luther term, sorry. Popery goes against that teaching, which I won't go there. Paul's proclaiming, we are all sons and daughters in Christ Jesus. There is a spiritual mutuality in that relationship that doesn't do away with the place of submission in a marriage. One place, I think, helps make that clearer than any. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Head of Christ is God. What did we learn those three years we are more preaching through the Gospel of John? That Jesus and the Father, that the Son and the Father are co-eternal, and they are co-equal. There's no distinction between the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Paul says here, the head of Christ is God. And then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has the seen the Father, and on and on and on. So how can God be the head of Christ? How do we answer that question? Well, if it can't be because of their nature due to all the other teaching of Scripture regarding the equality of the Father and the Son, if it can't be because of their nature, then it must be because of their function. He who is co-equal with the Father from all eternity submits to the Father's will. Not because he's inferior to the Father, but because it's vital, it's necessary For the purposes of God. And Jesus delights to do the Father's will. And that is the structure built into marriage. A wife's subjection to her husband does not make her inferior. In Christ, they are equal. Only their function is different. They have the same nature as Christians. 
but for the order of the family to function in a unity. And yet without the wife experiencing the loss of self-esteem or self-respect, she submits to the headship of the husband, even as Christ submits to God and the employee submits to the employer and the citizen submits to the government in the same way, likewise. And when we understand that and put those passages together, I believe it comes clear. And it's important that you're able to counter when the world says that we believe women are inferior It's interesting to me that we still get targeted with that objection many times. We believe and work in making it an important priority. But the world today, the world out there acts as if women are inferior. We get attacked for it. The world out there acts. One example Several articles in the paper just this week. Women's pay for the same jobs nationwide is less than a man's. Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter who. It's a fact. We simply, the world out there simply still acts as if women are inferior. That's just one example. Many ways in our culture we treat women as if they are. But in all places, of all places... We must ensure that it's not the case in the church. In Christ, we are equal. And so Peter goes on to say, So that even if some, submit to your husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The wife submits to the loving, caring husband who loves the Lord. Isn't that great? You can do that, women. You can do it. We're still jerks sometimes, but you can do it. But what if he doesn't love the Lord? What if he's a nut? What if he's just a wimp and he had led a day in his life? What about that guy who's not the leader of his family? Or he's not a believer? This is instruction for all wives, by the way. Likewise, wives, be subjects to your own husbands. Then he says, so that even if some do not obey the word. So he's speaking to all wives. Some of these husbands might not obey the word. And notice he says, at the very beginning, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. You don't have to be subject to anybody else's husband or any other man. You only have to be subject to your own husband. One's enough, right? I get an amen. But there's a goal in all this. The goal is first obedience to God, obey the word. And secondly, their salvation. That they may be one. That they may be saved. There's context here as well. That's what makes this so radical. The first part wasn't radical. The women of that day, sure, we're supposed to be subject to our husbands. We've been raised that way and it's the law. What was probably surprising to the original readers is that here in an ethical section, he's talking about government. He's talking about servants and masters. This ethical section, he deals with husbands and wives at all. That probably surprised them. Women were property, even on the religion side. And here's where the problem occurs. Women were expected to follow the religion of their husbands. The family religion was the husband's religion. This is why Peter gives six verses to women and only one to men. 
In that culture, it was much more challenging for the women who became believers. He focuses on wives whose husbands are not Christians. Although he'd do the same, the instruction applies to us today. But it was even more radical for them. He speaks to women as if you were allowed to make up your mind. See what Christ does? He speaks to women as if they were an independent person. He supports their decision to turn to Christ. He encourages their goal in winning their husbands. This was the revolution and revolutionary attitude in that culture. The original readers of this letter were shocked to read this. Plutarch, Greek historian, describes this culture. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships. And so what if Christ comes into my life? And that woman thinks, into her life, and that woman thinks, oh no, what's going to happen? He could kill me for this. Even though Peter calls on wives to submit to their husbands, it was different from the submission that that culture required. For the wives now, he's writing to Christians, for these wives, first and foremost, their devotion was to Christ. See that? Even if some do not obey the word. That's Stacy's testimony. I can think of four or five other couples in this church today. It's the same testimony where the wife lived a faithful Christian life and the husband came later due to her faithfulness. Some of them might not even believe the word, submit to your husband, period, all of you. Some of them might not even believe the word. How do you deal with that? What does that mean even that they don't believe, obey the word, do not, even if some do not obey the word? Well, back in uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read this. He, he describes that they're lost. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. It's the same phrase. They disobey the word as they were destined to do. They've rejected the gospel. And in those cases, the conduct of the wife should be such that the husband is saved, not by the wife's speech, but by the wife's silence. That's what he says, that they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Not that they might not be won without the word. We know faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He says a word, meaning a word from his wife. They are more likely to be won by behavior than by words. Like, it's not as though anybody could not be won without hearing the gospel. Clearly, they, clearly these have already heard the gospel because he said they disobeyed the word. How could they disobey the word if they haven't heard it already? They chose to reject the word. And the implication is he doesn't want to hear it again. This is the case. Let the husband see the word in your life. Let the husband see you live out the word in the context of your marriage. 
In so many words, Peter is saying, you can't nag him about this. You can't debate Christianity with him about this. You can't tell him where he's failing the Word of God. Stop taping Bible verses on the refrigerator. Resist the desire to constantly teach and preach and nag about your newfound belief. Your responsibility is not that he hears what you believe, but he sees what you believe. It doesn't mean you can't talk at all. Peter's speaking here of silence that refers to the gospel. The subject of the gospel should be cheerfully dropped in your home, women, if your husband is an unbeliever. He's heard enough. Alistair Begg says, The missionary impact is not going to come through the ears, but through the eyes. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct, In his Confessions, which is Augustine confessing his sins in a prayer, he described the witness of his Christian mother that led to the salvation of his pagan father. It's so beautiful. In his prayer, Augustine said, She served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Peter's instruction is not merely negative, forbidding wives to verbally pressure their husbands to come to faith in Christ. No, he gives other instructions here. They might see your respectful and pure behavior, conduct. Paul mentioned that in Ephesians 5.33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Respectful. The word pure... There's an element of sexual purity here, too. Sexual purity wasn't a requirement in the first century. It was for believers. So Peter's saying to be pure. There are other ways to be pure, too, not just from a sexual standpoint. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And he offers similar advice as Peter does in Titus 2.5. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Pure literally means free from sin. Peter's calling on wives to live to the highest moral standards possible. Not merely those standards of the culture that you live in, but the highest moral standards possible. And so he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, the next few verses outlines more specifically what all that means. How do you do that in today's world? It's hard because we're sinners, right? You ladies living with unbelieving husbands, it's hard, right? 
And we have trouble submitting to anyone because we're sinners. All of us fall into that category. We all have trouble submitting to anybody because we're sinners. We don't want to give up our own rights. The only way that can happen is to stay in the Word. The only way that can happen is to stay on your knees in prayer. Be empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit to face what may come your way. And it might not be pleasant. One other thought. One other thought is that this is accomplished only if you're concerned for another person's soul because that's the purpose of it all. Live this way quietly. Let him see your behavior that he might be won by your behavior. He's heard the gospel already. If you don't care about his soul... You can't do it. The purpose of this submission is that they be one. We submit to the government. We submit to the evil employer and to the lost husband because we care about their souls. The problem in many cases is that we don't care whether people go to hell or not. Maybe even our spouse So God calls us to examine ourselves just to see how he's leading us to grasp, hold this vital truth and play a role, play a role quite possibly in seeing your husband come to faith in Christ. That's his word for us today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a hymn. As we do, we encourage encourage all of you, if you have questions, if you need prayer, if you're struggling with this particular issue of having an unbelieving husband, or you're just struggling with submission, period, Pastor Greg and others will be in the back. While we sing, you just make your way back there and have them pray with you. That's a start. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace in our lives. And it's only grace that allows us to be able to do what this passage has called us to do. We pray that your grace might be sufficient as we serve you, as we walk with you day by day. Help us to be your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.